In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. So sometimes when preparing a sermon, you look at the lectionary readings and the kinds of things they're saying, and the thought hits you. I'm not making any friends this week. I don't know where the quote comes from, but it's often said that sermons are supposed to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. But our readings this week, the balance seems to lean much more in the direction of affliction rather than comfort. Don't worry, I believe we'll have some hope to grab hold of at the end, but there are some tough bits that we'll walk through in order to get there. Last week, we heard from Deacon Rob about the need for repentance. And this week's our readings puts on display the reality for those who don't. Case in point, the reading from Isaiah. Isaiah 5 is written like a love song in which a suitor makes this grand gesture for his beloved, putting in all kinds of labor by planting a vineyard, clearing it of stones, building up walls, setting up a watchtower, putting together this extravagant gift. But the song takes a turn. The vineyard, instead of producing grapes, produces wild grapes instead. And so the whole thing gets torn down. For his audience, the metaphor is this. God set you up and expected you to be righteous, and instead you've abandoned his ways. The result? The people would go into exile. Or, as Isaiah puts it a few verses later, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. The nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude go down, and her throng and all who are in her. Isaiah's message is about God's judgment against the people of Judah. God offers a defense of his actions. I've set up this whole vineyard. You tell me, what else could I have done? God has made a people, brought them out of slavery, established them in the land, given them the law so that they would know how to live. When they started to go astray, he sent the prophets to warn them and call them back. Despite it all, they went their own way. The natural produce of what God had planted, the fruit of that vineyard, should have been justice and righteousness. But instead, it was bloodshed and a cry. The pairing of the words in Hebrew are such that they sound similar. So the grammar is like saying, I looked for a friend, but instead you were a fiend. So what were these wild grapes that the vineyard produced? Well, in the verses that come immediately after, Isaiah speaks to those who join house to house, field to field, until there is room for no one but you, and you are left to live alone in the midst of the land. Later, he'll condemn those who rise early in the morning in pursuit of strong drink, but who do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. In the first chapter of the book, Isaiah urges the people to change their ways and seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Now, I think it's common for folks to read the Old Testament prophets and pick either idolatry or injustice as the sin of the people of God. But Isaiah doesn't have that kind of distinction. It is in the systemic oppression of the poor or in a refusal to act in the face of systemic oppression that we act out our unfaithfulness to God. And since worship forms us, it is in idolatry that we become the kind of people who refuse to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before our God. Splitting the two up is a way to try and minimize what God wants his people to do and to be. Esau Macaulay puts it this way in his book, Reading While Black. Isaiah was not rejected simply because he told Israel to worship Yahweh. He was rejected because Isaiah realized that true worship of Yahweh had implications 
for how one treated their neighbor. According to Isaiah, Israel's oppression of the poor in his day betrayed a practical apostasy. To make it clear, elevating anything at all from the country we live in to our 401k to personal comfort to families to politics, anything at all, lifting it to an inappropriate place of privilege in our lives is not just breaking the second commandment of don't make for yourself any idol, but it forms us into the kind of people who will break the rest of the commandments as well. Jesus summarizes the law as loving God and loving our neighbor, and every other good that we pursue must be in service of those two commandments. This all matters because just as Israel was entrusted with the promised land and a law that would lead to life instead of death, we have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus that brings life out of death. Jesus uses this idea of stewardship frequently, for instance, in the parable of the talents, and also this morning in this parable of the landowner with a vineyard. Now, I don't find this to be a frequently discussed parable. I don't feel like I talk about it or hear about it a lot. But it's in all three synoptic gospels, almost identical in form in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it must have been pretty important for Jesus' early followers. And it's clear that Jesus is bringing to mind this prophetic text of Isaiah 5, this laborer and the vineyard and the vineyard that God created. In Jesus' parable, it's a story of a landowner who puts tenants in charge of the vineyard. But when that landowner sends slaves and even his own son to collect the produce from the vineyard, they kill them all. Now, this is the exact opposite of what we heard last week in Philippians 2, in which Jesus doesn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but was willing to give it up. We might think that the tenants are foolish for killing the son of the landowner. What would they expect would come out of it? But their tactics make sense if they believe the landowner is either dead or never coming. Kill the son, and there's no one to stop them from holding on to the vineyard for themselves. It's worth pausing to think about how we take the things that God has entrusted us with, both tangible and intangible, and mistake them as ours by right, instead of recognizing our status as simply caretakers for God's things. To hammer his point home, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, saying that the stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. Now, Peter will take up this language and use it both in his sermon on the day of Pentecost and again in his first epistle. Jesus then brings in language from Daniel 2, that the stone will crush anyone upon whom it falls. In that chapter, Daniel is interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of this statue comprised of four different kinds of material and the whole thing gets crushed by a stone. Daniel's explanation is that each material represents a different subsequent empire, and the stone that smashes them all was this never-ending kingdom that Yahweh would establish. Jesus' meaning is clear. He is being rejected by the Pharisees, but he will become the cornerstone, and he will crush all other empires, inaugurating Yahweh's never-ending kingdom. But who gets to belong to this kingdom? Well, remember last week when Jesus told the chief priests and elders that the tax collectors and the prostitutes would be going into the kingdom ahead of them because they believed John the Baptist. When Jesus talks about vineyards and says that the kingdom belongs to those who bear fruit of the kingdom and invokes John the Baptist, it's not by accident. Because when the religious leaders went out to John to be baptized, he told them that they needed to, quote, bear fruit worthy of repentance, 
Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I think what Jesus is saying in all of this is clear. You Pharisees, you religious leaders have not listened to what John the Baptist told you. He is the last of the prophets, giving you your last warning, and so you will be cut off. The Pharisees understand Jesus' parable pretty well. This is not one of those ones that only those who have ears to hear will understand, because all the Gospels record that their response is to want to kill Jesus. That's what calling others to repentance will get you. Jesus' message and Isaiah's message is certainly one of invitation, but there are some hard edges. Following God, repentance is hard, and it requires us to be open to hearing that call, hearing what it is we have to repent for. We have so many examples in Scripture of people who are convinced they are right, but habits form us, and living in the suburbs in 2020, we have to be open to hearing and seeing how cords of idolatry and injustice have braided together and bound us. We have had weeks of texts on Sunday mornings, from Jonah to Isaiah to Ezekiel to all of Jesus' parables that call us to do hard self-examination. Because repeated instances of injustice don't happen in a vacuum. They're not one-off actions. They require a system to hold them up and perpetuate them. Corporate repentance means asking for forgiveness for the evil that happens in our midst and asking ourselves individually how we have contributed and supported those systems by what we have done and by what we have left undone. As I said, these are hard texts to make friends with. But lest we are tempted to see God as a simply vengeful God, looking to exact punishment whenever he can, I want to finish by reminding ourselves of who God is and what he is like. Tone matters, and I think it's helpful to see that Isaiah's song is one of longing that things could have been different. Yahweh is the God who puts in the intense labor to set up the vineyard in the first place. God longs for us to turn to him, to walk in ways that lead to life instead of death. Jesus himself, two chapters after our reading, will look over Jerusalem and say, if only you knew the ways that made for peace, how I wish I could have gathered you under my wings. Paul similarly grieves for those who live in opposition to Jesus. Paul believes and knows firsthand the freedom that comes from living in Christ, so it pains him to see those who refuse to do so. In the passage we read this morning, Paul encourages his readers to press on towards the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. For Paul, this is an ongoing process. A few verses prior, he talks about how he hasn't fully attained what is coming. And so while it's true that we can imitate Paul as an example of following Christ, we're imitating a process, not a product. Nobody, not even Paul, has arrived at full spiritual maturity. So in our self-examination, we need not despair. Paul tells the Philippians to hold fast to what they've already attained. Start from where you already are. Whatever measure of faithfulness or virtue you have, begin there. That's where God wants to start to do his work. And it's God doing the work, because at the end of the day, the whole project doesn't depend on us. God is the God who asks the people, what else could I have done? 
and then goes one step further in sending Jesus to accomplish what we could not. Paul says that God will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory. God does the transformation. It's in our submission to Jesus that we find healing. When the world outside of us and when the tempest inside our own hearts seems utterly chaotic, Paul reminds us that we are citizens of heaven. And don't miss that. Philippi was a colony of its own distant kingdom, its own kingdom that could not be seen, called Rome. And so when Paul invokes the heavenly citizenship, he's reminding us that the role of a colony is not to eventually make your way back to the capital, but to make the culture and ways of the empire more fully realized in the colony. Our hope is not in going to heaven, but that heaven might be real here on earth, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. This is the hope that we find in Christ, that as citizens of heaven, the injustice and idolatry all around us will be and even is now being transformed by the true Lord, not Caesar, not America, not presidents, not governors, not influencers or pundits, but by King Jesus himself. It is to him that Paul points his hope, that in all of this we await the revealing of Jesus, Jesus to be made known for who he truly is, the one who is able to make all things subject to himself. And so I want to close on that image and on a sort of picture that came to mind as I was preparing this sermon. So just a few verses earlier, when Paul says, you know, not, not that I have already obtained this or that I've already reached at my goal, he says this, I press on to take hold of that to, of which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Let me read that again. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That taking hold, that word is applied both to Paul and to Jesus here. Paul clings to Jesus because Jesus clings to Paul. Picture it like this. If you've ever picked up a child who wants to be held, whether they're tired or hurting or just want to be near, you'll discover you hoist them up and they cling on to you with their arms and legs and they use every muscle they have to stay up there with no real sense of the fact that their weight is entirely carried by you. They feel safe and secure because they're holding on, but they are safe and secure because they are being held. And frankly, this is how every spiritual practice or discipline works. From reading scripture or fasting to committing to thrice daily prayer for our church, you're not practicing a skill so that you can get better at it. You are leaning in and throwing your arms around Jesus as he picks you up and holds you. God is serious about his call to repentance. And there is always important soul searching to be done in order to understand what it is we're called to do, to repent of, what sins we need to turn from. But don't mistake who's doing the heavy lifting in this relationship. Cling to Jesus, who loves you more than you know and is faithful in all the times that we are faithless. May we rest in his arms, who was willing to lift stones to build a vineyard and to lift our tired, hurt, and weary and fragile selves as we cling to him. Amen.